Well, good morning. It's fun to be here today. I love this service, celebrating life transformation. It's great to be together. It's a privilege to open up the Word with you. And uh, this is the last week of our kind of six, seven week long series that we've had in For the Win, what are we, what's worth training for. That's been the encouragement and the challenge over the last few weeks is what are we training for and how do we as a church equip and empower um, and encourage the believers for the work of ministry. And so we started with some seminary professors coming in here and kind of encouraging us and challenging us and deepening our understanding of the word. And the last three weeks have been more practical. How do we serve as a community? How do we connect as a community? And this morning, how do we lead as a community? Simply put, leadership is influence. To be a leader is to have the ability to influence others. It has been said that if you think you are leading and no one is following you, you're just taking a walk. Leadership is great, but when I think of leadership in the church, I think of spiritual leadership. And so this morning I want to talk about what spiritual leadership is, and we're going to look at the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 to kind of go deeper into it and to see how it was played out in the first century church. A few definitions that I found about what spiritual leadership over this last week is this. Oswald Sanders, who wrote a book called Spiritual Leadership, says this. Leadership is influence, the ability of one person to influence others. Another author, George Barnum, many of you heard of, he says, A Christian leader is someone who is called by God to lead, leads with and through Christ-like character, demonstrates demonstrates the functional competencies that permit effective leadership to take place. Robert Clinton says this about leadership, the central task of leadership is influencing God's people towards God's purposes. I think all of these have great truths in what they're being said. One of the ones that spoke deepest to my heart over the years is from two guys named Blackaby and Blackaby. And uh, they wrote a book called uh, Spiritual Leadership and they define spiritual leadership as this is moving people onto God's agenda. That's what leadership is. That's what spiritual leadership is, is moving people onto God's agenda. And at Calvary, we talk all the time about what it looks like to empower leaders, to raise up leaders, to develop leaders. It's been part of the backbone of this church for many, many decades. Way before I was here, there was a a group of people who came in and they raised up college leaders. And what I understood over 40 years ago, they were sending out college students to the missionary field in droves because of just the culture and what was happening here. And then over the years that we've had at Calvary, just investing in young men and women has been critical to the mission of the church and even what we're doing now with our interns and our apprentices and our desire to have residents on staff. It's our desire to raise up leaders. Sometimes, though, we think about, hey, leaders are for only some people. And we begin, you might even start to tune me out this morning because you're like, I'm not a leader of any shape or form. And what I really believe is that God has given each one of us little spheres of leadership in different areas of our life. Some of us have bigger spheres, others of us have smaller spheres, but maybe you're a parent, and so your sphere is with your kids, or you're a neighbor, and so you have a relationship with them. You coach a team, you're a teacher, you're uh, a minister. You have a variety of different ways that we get to be leaders, and so I think 
in our culture and today that we all have influence. And so as godly men and women, our desire and our hope is to use that influence to move people onto God's agenda. And so when we say God's agenda, simple, the simplest form that I can think of is that God's agenda is this. It's, it's the Jesus creed, right? It's loving God and loving others. It's what he was about all the time. It's about loving God and loving others. And Jay said earlier is that we're here at Calvary, we're trying to build a Christ-centered community of people fully devoted to loving God and loving others. That's what we're hoping to move people towards. So if you have a Bible, you might want to open it up to 1 Thessalonians 1. So here we go. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. It says this, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Okay, let's just stop right there real quick so we understand what's happening, what the context is. Let me tell you a little bit about Thessalonica in the first century. Thessalonica at the time was the capital of Macedonia. It was founded about 314 BC, and at the time of the writing of this book, there was roughly 200,000 people that lived in that city. It was a very very big city at the time. It was positioned on the coast with this natural harbor in the Aegean Sea, um, and it was the trade route between Rome and the east. Thessalonica was the second kind of most influential city at the time behind Rome. Now, the church was set up by Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 17. So if you want to hold your place in Thessalonians 1, we're going to flip to Acts 17. I put little tabs in my Bible so I can do it quick. But move back a few few pages, and Acts 17 talks about kind of what happens. So Paul was on missionary journeys where he would move from kind of city to city. He would go and share the gospel, establish a group of people. They would become a church in that town, and then Paul would move on to another town to continue to multiply the church. So Paul ends up in Thessalonica, and upon arriving there, he goes and he sees the synagogue with the Jews, and in verse 2 it says, and Paul went into the synagogue as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So when he says scriptures, that's the Old Testament scriptures that he would have had at the time. Paul was a very educated um, theologian, and he was able to talk with Jewish people because that was his upbringing, and he was considered a great teacher at the time. So he'd go into the synagogue, and he would explain through the scriptures who Jesus was, explaining them explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this is Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks. Okay, so here's the situation. Paul comes into this town for three Sabbaths. He's there. It might have been longer. We don't have an exact timeline, but we know he was there at least three Sabbaths. He's sharing the good news. During the week, he's also going out talking to the community. And a bunch of Jews surrender their life and say they trust Christ as well as that there was Greeks who said, man, this is what I need. I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Lives were being transformed. People were coming together. The church was being established. Well, this did not make a few people happy. So they rose up this mob, this rabble, to come after Paul and Silas, and they wanted to stone them and get out of the town. Some of the people in the church, they protected Paul and Silas, and at cover of night, they slipped out to Berea. 
So that's how this church gets established. It pops up in a short period of time. There's believers there. Paul and Silas are kicked out of the church. They head to Berea. And then from Berea, they head to Corinth. And that's where Paul is going to write this letters from Corinth when what we believe is Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica and he reports how the church is going in, uh, to back to Paul when he's in Corinth. And then Paul, Silas, and Timothy write this letter. So back now to 1 Thessalonians verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanius. Now, Silvanius, Paul writes Silvanius in his letter. When we read the book of Acts, we see him as Silas. Same character, same person, just when Paul's writing versus when what we believe Luke is writing the book of Acts, they refer to him with these two different names. So Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonians, of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace. I love this idea of grace and peace because we need God's grace in our life to experience peace, right? So God's grace comes first, and then there's this peace that comes after them. So we see this deep love for the church and for the people there. In verse two, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This love, and Paul is trying to encourage the church and equip the church and help them understand more and more what it means to be a community of believers who's fully devoted to God's word, to the teaching, to prayer, and to being together in community with one another. And so he says, remember that their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord. Faith, hope, and love are essential to the church and are conjoined uh, throughout the scriptures. These were essential truths that they needed to live by. And faith rests in the past, love works in the present, and hope looks to the future. Faith looks back at the crucified Savior, love looks up to the crowned Savior, and hope looks to a coming Savior. So this is what he's establishing the church on, and he's reminding them, this is what it's all about. Verse four, for we know brothers loved by God for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's talking to those in the church who have trusted in Christ. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So Paul reminds these people, he reminds the believers at the time, that they were chosen by God, that God loves them, that he chose them, that he wants a relationship with them, that the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. Now the word gospel, this idea of gospel, is critical to the church. It's critical to us today. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The good news that Jesus came, he lived among us, he lived a sinless life, he was crucified, buried, and he rose again on the third day. And the reason we need the gospel is because all of us are sinners and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need to be saved from our sin because without the gospel, without Jesus, without hope, there, without the death and resurrection, there's no hope for us. Paul writes this in Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God and the power of God to transform lives. That is what we experienced this morning, watching these individuals share the hope that they have in Jesus and what Christ has done in their life. That's the transforming work of the gospel that Jesus came, he died, he rose again. That's what gives us life for anyone who believes in, in him shall have everlasting life. The gospel has great power. It has the ability to change lives, which we saw. It has the ability to restore relationships, the ability to heal those who are hurting. It is the ability to bring reconciliation, to set you free. It has the power of sin over sin and death. It is the ongoing work of Christ in our lives. I think we forget sometimes about the power of the gospel and what it's doing us. We forget about the power of God. We forget about in which the way, the way the Lord is working in our lives. We stop expecting God to do the impossible. The gospel is critical to us and how we live. The word power means the ability to kind of do anything. And the gospel always comes with the inerrant power with the Holy Spirit attached to it, and the Holy Spirit empowers the message so that it comes alive and stirs within the Spirit and brings conviction and change. The Spirit without the Word is weaponless, and the Word without the Spirit is powerless. We need both the Word and the Spirit working together to experience the ultimate power of God and the transforming work of the gospel. It brings full conviction in our life. This morning at the first hour in one of the baptisms, the lady in the tub, she says, I was fully convicted. I didn't even prompt her with that. But she said, I was convicted that I needed to be baptized because of the work of God in my life. I was convicted that I needed to trust Jesus with my life. This idea of full conviction means that you have full assurance that you're complete, that you would know for sure that you need Jesus in your life. And that's what it's so incredible when we get to that point of our life, when the gospel transforms us, we're fully convicted that we need to change our lives. We have full conviction, the power of the gospel truly transforms lives and it changes people. Now I wanna, I wanna skip to the end because I think Paul captures what he means by being fully convinced or fully convicted in the last few verses. So if you go to verse nine with me, it says this. For they themselves reported concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God. So, and we'll get to this. He's talking about how those, as the gospel goes out, they've continued to hear what had happened in the lives of the church at Thessalon, Thessalonica. And he says to them that they had heard that you had turned to God from your idols. This idea of turning is the same word as, as repentance, is to turn from one way to go into another direction. They repented, they returned, they left their old way of living. That's what the gospel does to our lives is we're living one way and when God gets a hold of our hearts and he shows us what Christ did for us, we see our sin in comparison to a holy God and we want nothing to do with it because we wanna be right with the Lord. And so we turn, we repent, we leave our ways of wickedness because we wanna be right with the Lord. He says they turned from idols. And in those times, there were a lot of idols in the towns and this is what they would worship, maybe a, 
an idol that was a statue. But it was more than that. An idol is something that prohibits your relationship with God. It's something that you value more than you value the Lord. And it can be a variety of things, material things, accomplishments, success. It could be a sin that you love that you just aren't willing to get rid of because you are finding it more important than your relationship with God. And so what he's saying is they heard the gospel and so they turned from the idols and they turned to God. So that's what I love is they turned and the next part is they served. Because the gospel has gotten a hold of their hearts, they served. They gave of themselves for the sake of the kingdom of God. They served the true and living God. That is what happens when the gospel changes your life. You see that your life is not that important. That you were created to be a workman for God's purposes. That you were created to serve and use your gifts and talents for the kingdom of God. That it's no longer about you, but it's all about Jesus and what he did for us. Your life is no longer yours. It belongs to the Lord. And you say to the Lord, Lord, what can I do? It's that obedience. Lord, here I am. Send me. So that's what happened when they were fully convinced. Is they turned, they served, and then finally they waited. They waited for the Lord to return. They turned from the idols. They served the Lord. And they waited. That's what the gospel does to people. When you're headed in one direction, the Lord grabs a hold of your life. And then you listen and, and then the life changes. And as we heard the stories this morning, like you get excited because that's what God does when he grabs a hold of people's hearts is that it be, they become dangerous for the kingdom of God because they're no longer living for themselves, but they're living for the book. Or they're living for the Lord. <clears throat> Paul has identified himself as the writer of this book and he encourages, he's encouraging the church to kind of live for him. He's established in which a way the gospel has gone out. So he's talking about how the gospel is transforming lives. And then he's also saying, this is how the gospel has moved from Jerusalem to Judea to, Judea to the ends of the earth. And let's pick it up here in verse, six, in verse uh, five. Sorry. It says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul, Timothy, and Silas lived amongst them, they worked amongst them, they demonstrated their heart to them, and they did it for their sake. They proved to them what it means to be transformed by the gospel, and then they lived among them, and they did it for the sake of the people. It's such a cool thing to know that they loved them so much that they wanted to demonstrate what a transformed life looks like, and they lived among them. They proved what Christ had done for them for the sake of the people knowing and following God. And these people had the ability to know their life, their character, their heart, their story of what Christ did for them. They'd seen their lives. They'd seen what Christ had done. They had seen how the truth of the Lord impacted their life. And they did it for the sake of the people in Thessalonica. Paul, Silas, and, Tim and Timothy proved themselves for the believers there and they demonstrated what a transformed life looks like. That is the example of Christ, friends, is that Christ lived amongst us, and he demonstrated what it means to be a faithful follower. He passed it on to his disciples, and his disciples, and so on, and so on, and so on. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You imitated 
us. I think this is such an important concept. We don't always know how to do things. We don't always know what it means to live as a follower of Christ. And so Paul and Timothy and Silas became an example that those can imitate. We do this in all domains of our life, I believe. We find people who are a little bit ahead of us, they're a little bit farther along in the journey, whether it's in the workplace and you find someone who can mentor you and demonstrate, hey, this is how you do this job, or maybe you're at school and you're a lonely freshman and you look up to like a junior or a senior and you're like, just teach me what it means to be a good student because I'm clueless or I can't even find the restroom or whatever it is, but you're like, I want to know what it is in my own personal personal life lately I have a couple of of girls who really want to play at the next level of softball as you heard Addie talk about in the tub and so I have found someone who's helped his daughter um, get to play softball at college level and I am sitting with him listening to the story and the steps and the different things that he's doing because I'm wanting to follow that example of what they're doing now that's one domain of our life but when it comes to the spiritual domain of our life we want to find others who are a little bit further along in our journey and we want to imitate what they are doing we want to follow their example we want to see their life we want to see how they handle certain situations we want to see what it looks like to pray how to study god's word what does it look like to memorize scripture how does it mean to interact with your spouse how do you love on your kids how do you have relationships at the workplace how do we care for our neighbors that's what it means when he says that you imitate us and the church imitated them not only did they imitate them but they also imitated the Lord. The Lord is the ultimate example. The Jesus is the ultimate disciple maker that we want to follow. The way he loved and cared for and walked with his disciples. He lived among them. He taught them. He was the ultimate example of what it means to be a godly individual. And that's what happened in the church. Is that the believers of Thessalonica, they did what Paul did. They imitated his life and his ministry and they followed his example just like Paul and Timothy and Silas were following the example of the Lord. So when I think of spiritual leadership, I think about what these men did. I think about the life and ministry of Jesus. I think about how they demonstrated a disciple-making lifestyle. And this is what was happening in the church. Paul taught in the synagogue. He lived in such a way that proved to the people that he was a follower of Christ. And then those people followed his example. And then those people in Macedonia and Acadia followed his example. And so on and so on and so on. So a couple of things that I learn about what spiritual leadership is and maybe some things that we can take, for, take from today in the example of the scripture this is... And how we move people onto God's agenda is this. Number one, a spiritual leadership's job is to teach people of God's ways. I think that's one of the most important things that we do as followers of Christ. And you see that like in Deuteronomy where um, Moses is instructing the people. is like you, you teach your kids. You demonstrate. You show them. You, you write them on your doorpost. You, you continue to instruct people. It's in the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and teach everything that I have commanded you to do. That's the instruction that we get is to continue to, to teach. So as a spiritual leadership, one of my jobs is I need to teach people of God's ways. You see this in this letter here. Paul is teaching them. He's teaching them how to pray, what you should be praying for, that the word is important, that relationships are important. So there's an ongoing job of a spiritual leader is to teach. 
The second thing I learned is a spiritual leadership job is to be an example of God's ways. A spiritual leadership leader's job is to be an example of God's ways. Let no one, this is Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. These are five great things that we could think about of what does it look like for us to be an example to others of how to live. It's the way we talk to one another. It's the way we conduct ourselves. It's the way we love one another. It's the faith that we have, and it's in our purity. This is the example we want to set for others and what it looks like to be in a, uh, a spiritual leader. And so it's the way we teach, and it's the way we live. And then finally, I put a spiritual leader's job is to reproduce others to follow God's ways. That's one of the things that we want to do. We want to be intentionally looking for others that we're influencing to demonstrate what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And we continue to pass on and we reproduce ourselves. And this is what I learn as I read 1 Timothy here, is, or 1 Thessalonians, is how the gospel goes out, right? It was Paul talking to the church, the church demonstrating it for those in Macedonia and Achaia, and those in Macedonia and Achaia, and it says, and it goes out everywhere. I love that picture for the word of the Lord sounded forth in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. How incredible that would be to be a disciple maker. You've invested in other people. Those people have invested and shared the gospel with others. And so you're no longer needed in the process because the gospel is going out because of the work you did with those you invested in. That's what I think about. I think of those who invested in me and then the way that the Lord has allowed me to work in my life and I've been able to invest in others. And this is what we learn about in scripture. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 too. And, you, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men and who will be able to teach others. And so Paul is saying this to Timothy. So Paul to Timothy. Timothy to many witnesses, many witnesses to faithful men and faithful men to teach others. That's what's happening here in Thessalonica is that Paul to the church, to the church, to Macedonia, to Macedonia, to everywhere. This is what it looks like to be a community of disciples makers, a community of spiritual leaders who take the gospel out. This is the job of a spiritual leader is to move people onto God's agenda, to teach them the ways of the Lord, to teach them to live for the community. So this happens. It goes out. The gospel continues to go out. For they themselves reported about the coming of the reception we had among you and how you turned to God. And it goes back to that gospel. You turned, you um, served, and you waited. And that's what it's been all about. And that's what we're trying to to do here at Calvary is we want to continue to live a disciple-making lifestyle. We want to empower leaders and multiply churches. That's why I think about the season that we're in right now and how we're starting three services next week. It's because we want to continue to make room for more and more people to hear about the good news of, of Christ. And we're still continuing to pray in a year that 
that God would do a great work here, that we would have a, a need to open up another campus and another community. Because I think about the work that was done, I guess, 14 years ago in Boulder, where they said, hey, there's a new growing community in Erie, and we want to take the gospel out there. And so how fun it is, is they, those believers in Boulder came to Erie, and now hopefully the church in Erie is going to go to another community, and that other community will go to another community as we see the gospel being taken to the ends of the earth. That's what we want to be about. That's our hope and our desire and what we are praying for as we think about the future of Calvary Bible Church. That the gospel will impact our lives and because the gospel motivates us to take the truth out that we would be a community of people who would share the good news and the hope of Jesus to a broken and hurting world. Amen? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, I thank you that you are at work here in the church. That you Love us so much that you gave up your son, Jesus, as the ultimate sacrifice. This morning, Lord, I pray for my friends and the people I don't even know in this room, Lord, that, that you would stir in their hearts a desire to follow and to know you, Lord. I pray the Spirit would move in us with power to fully convict us that you are God and God alone, that that would transform us. It would cause us to turn from our idols, that it would cause us to serve the true and living God and that we would wait for your glorious return. That's why we live, Lord. I pray that this would be a community that would not be so focused on ourselves, but we'd be on mission with you to take, the, take your message to a broken, hurting world, Lord. We love you. We trust you. We acknowledge you as good and great and gracious. May you be worshipped. May you be placed at the position you deserve because you are holy and you are good. Father, we thank you this morning to hear the stories of lives that have been transformed. I pray that we would hear more and more stories because of the faithfulness of the men and women in this room as they would go from here. They would be disciple makers, they'd be spiritual leaders, and they'd be a community that leads and sees the work of the gospel transformed in the lives of people. We love you in your name. Amen.